first word. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you for leaving me three words, Tim. I'm glad you took four. I think three, I'm not sure I can handle that. A quick word before I open in prayer. There are two more spots left in August uh, that there are no teachers who volunteered yet, so please, if you haven't and you're considering it or haven't considered it, please consider it. Teaching. Pray for me. All right, oh, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, we declare you to be king here because you have declared Christ to be king. Thank you that we have the privilege of discussing him. You've given us any knowledge of him at all. Look upon us now, we pray, and see that there is another who stands in the midst of the people, a head taller than the rest, handsome in appearance, but curses are on his tongue, and he has sought after the Lord's anointed like a hound seeks after blood. We need a better one, one on whose tongue is no curses, uh, one who has a heart like yours, a man after your own heart, a king to govern the furthest reaches of your kingdom. And we pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us about your kingdom today. And if you're not here in our midst, there will be no truth. There will be lots of ideas. And please cast out your ideas and give us truth. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, here's a brief outline of what we'll cover. And we have about an hour to do it. <laughs> See if we can hold to this. And I'll use your help, too. Please feel free to help me. This is the format as we investigate the three words, thy kingdom come. First, we'll start our journey in Mark with John the Baptist in Christ's own words. Hopefully that can set us straight. And it'll probably prompt more questions than we have answers to yet. <clears throat> and then I'll offer six questions to get our thoughts going. Take a couple minutes each. I'm not going to answer them all, unless you guys are on point today. And then we'll be done in a half hour. No. So uh, after those <laughs> introductory questions, to, to zero ourselves in, uh, five minutes of questions. Uh, and there's no way I'll do justice. So I really look forward to everyone everyone's input and answers. And then we'll dive back into those six questions in detail, and I'll have some more for you. So if you aren't talking, I'll keep asking. All right, so by way of introduction first, before we jump into Mark chapter 1, I want to mention a recap quickly who we're praying to. It's God, the Father, the true Father. And sorry, all you dads, but he... He does everything you're called to do better, and it's a good thing he does. He teaches us everything that we, that we need to do, and he equips us to do everything that he requires. He's a heavenly one. He walked on earth for a bit, Christ, but he's the heavenly one, and wrap your head around that. And he's the hallowed one. Thank you, Tim, the one who's set apart. Thank goodness for last week, otherwise I'd be dead in the water right now. All right, 
Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, and I'll read for us, but please do read along. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. We'll see John the Baptist and Jesus. And hopefully by the time we get to 19, you wish that we were reading more because the story is so much bigger than just these 19 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea Judea, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Sounds delicious. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now that's a summary for you. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We wouldn't be able to do justice to everything that's being told here. But this sets the stage, and on two men's lips is this proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't answer any of the question of what the kingdom of God is quite yet. Hopefully we'll do justice to that. Um, I'm going to cheat and answer, and I'll answer again until I'm blue in the face, uh, uh, from, first of all, from John Gill, what is meant by the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John Gill was alive in the late 1690s, thank you very much, and to the mid to late 1700s, and he says this. When John the Baptist says, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in this petition, the disciples were taught to pray for the success of the gospel. We'll talk about what that means, both among Jews and Gentiles, for the conversion of God's elect, in which the kingdom of God would greatly appear, to the destruction of the kingdom of Satan, 
And he goes on to say, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, nay, had taken place, though as yet was not very visible. Think of John the Baptist, even in this story, he's put in prison. What happens to these messengers of the kingdom? What a kingdom, huh? If the messengers are beheaded, crucified, um, but it becomes visible in time. Though as yet was not very visible, and which is spiritual in the hearts of God's people, Jews and Gentiles, and which will appear exceeding glorious in the latter day, and at last be swallowed up in the ultimate glory, the ultimate glory of the coming of Christ, all which must be very desirable by the sincere lovers of Jesus Christ. All right, that's a mouthful, and um, I will not repeat it unless you ask. We'll reserve the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a little more succinct, for when we get into the meat of the discussion. And if I forget, please remind me. So six introductory questions. I'll read them through once to give you a preview, and we'll have about two minutes to answer each. And that's just to get our minds going. Um, short answers will prove uh, useful now, and we can give longer answers later. First one, what is the chief end of the kingdom of heaven? Second, what are the ways of the Lord of this kingdom? What are his, what does he do? Who is he? Um, third, what are the rules of the kingdom? If there's a kingdom, there, there better be laws. Four, what are the boundaries of the kingdom? If there are boundaries to this kingdom, the boundaries to every earthly kingdom, what are the ways of the servants of this kingdom? And what are the ways of the enemies of this kingdom? All right. Might as well start at the beginning. What is the chief end of the kingdom of heaven? Uh, is there an end to the kingdom of heaven? Kind of presupposes that there is some purpose to the kingdom of heaven. And what might it be? Any ideas? <clears throat> Rob? Glory of God. We're done. All right, no, any other answers? <laughs> any other thoughts? Tim? Yeah, this is where I'm not so much teacher as question asker. <laughs> Excuse me for taking notes. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? Fishers of men, building the community of God. Greg. Yeah, the, the scriptures speak of the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And when Christ goes out and has fellowship with the Spirit and prays to the Father, that is quite a model for the behavior that we are allowed to have, the privilege we're allowed to have with fellowship with God as well, and fellowship with one another in Christ. 
Well, that's more than two minutes. Oh, Matthew. <laughs> I'm not going to say no. <laughs> and then Tim. <laughs> He is the head. Everything takes its command from the head, unified in him. Tim? Mm -hmm. Adam, Adam had fellowship with God. He was, and I'll steal a line from Alistair Begg, who I've been inundated with this week, um, he describes the kingdom of heaven as God's people in God's place under God's rule, receiving his blessing. And what a picture in Eden of, of that fellowship. And in a safe place, speaking of boundaries, uh, there were angels guarding the boundaries after, after Adam's disobedience. But... Uh, they had fellowship with God like we haven't experienced. <laughs> Cindy first and then Bill. Mm -hmm. God sets the rules and then he holds everyone to the rules and, and upholds righteousness and punishes the breaching of those rules. And nothing slips by him, not, not one thing. Bill. Romans 13, 17 teaches us that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that, that's just how we should live. Yeah, the kingdom of... Thank you, Bill. We... That concludes the talk of the chief end of the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> what, a, what, a, um, what a verse. And it's, is that not after Paul speaks uh, regarding, he says the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking. And, and it takes it right away. We, if we don't eat and drink, we're gone. So how can it be that a kingdom of any kind is, has to do with immaterial things, righteousness, <laughs> peace, but it does. Yes. All right. What are the ways of the Lord of this kingdom? We've already started to answer that. Any thoughts? He's the head. He does a pretty good job at that. He sets the role. That's all right. We'll save that for later because I have a lot more questions on that one. Tim. <laughs> should have taught this lesson. <laughs> uh-huh. 
We're going to come back to that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, how can it be that a king would be a servant? The king has servants. You know? He gets, like Solomon got to draft tens of thousands of laborers to do his work for him. What are the boundaries of the kingdom? There might not be an answer to this one. Any thoughts? Yeah, God makes a distinction. Is it in Revelation where he depicts the city of God and the outer reaches outside the city? There's a, it's a mental picture of a distinction of place, at least. Whatever that's going to look like in eternity. Distinction of place at the end of time where the elect have the privileges and benefits of God and the, and the condemned don't. Ginny. God is vast. Who can try to describe the boundaries of the kingdom of God? I think that's a fair answer. I don't have an answer for you. Um, I don't think I should have said that. All right. Uh, Andrew. I think that all of these are so interconnected. The ideas, rules, boundaries, God's characteristics. And it's Paul's privilege of breaking open, and not just Paul's. Was it Peter who saw the blanket descend? This new order where Jews and Gentiles can inherit the kingdom of heaven. There was an ingrafting into what was a plant. And the Lord says distinctly that there is a before and an after. It seems like the boundaries changed. And I, I'm overgeneralizing now, and if someone wants to correct me, please do. Brian. Thank you. <laughs> Says my kingdom is not of this world. How how revolutionary of an idea too? Because well, I'll just leave it at that. You guys have better things to say at this moment, Mike. <laughs>
he says some things like it is easier for a rich man, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, which sounds like, oh, well, okay, if I'm poor, maybe it'll be easier for me. But the Lord, by his spirit, he targets and he gives the gift of mercy and, and says, you can be part of my, my kingdom, part of my people. <clears throat> Liz. What are the ways of the servants of the kingdom? Being childlike. All right. What are the ways of the enemies of this kingdom? Tim. They hate him, and they're facing the other way. I've always, something that's been almost bugging me this week, even though it's probably been answered many times, is the more like Christ we are, as good as it sounds, and as good as it is, are we really going to be despised more like Christ? Is that the end result? Yeah, persecution can come to those, and someone in, you know, who's facing the Boko Haram, is in a place where there's hatred, and it's not here. They're they're dying, and yeah, the Lord said that there would be persecution, but can I receive persecution for the Spirit working Christ likeness in me? I don't like that idea fundamentally. My human nature doesn't like that idea, but it's I stuck with it. Praise the Lord. I thought I saw a hand. No, I didn't. Okay, now I'm seeing hands. This is going to be interesting. Liz. Great arson tongue. Tim.
Yeah, they are uh, they're following the prince of the world who has his own dominion. And it happens to be set up in opposition to God out of a hatred for God. Same fundamental principles at, at play. This personification, you mentioned sin, and the Lord describes sin as an enemy. The tongue can be personified in some sense as, as though it has a will of its own. We know it's part of the human nature. Death. There are a lot of enemies of, of the kingdom. Well, five minutes for any questions. <laughs> um, starting now, and then we'll just dig in a little deeper. I have a lot more questions for you guys. So any thoughts, any questions before we jump in? Brian? If the kingdom of God was at hand and there was good news associated with it, could it have been at hand 2,000 years ago and yet not be there? I don't have an answer for that, an articulate answer for that, if anyone else wants to. Uh-huh, and then we'll come back. <laughs> When, we, when our sinful nature opposes God, we're uh, raising a sword up against him. When he was the one who stood in the way of the punishment for our sin and is wielding a sword on our behalf, and that we would turn around and say, I want to lie to somebody because I don't want to deal with the consequences. Revolting against God's rule as though I'm raising a sword up against him. When, he's, when the spirit of God is concerned, with my obedience, and is the and the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So what is yeah? I, I wonder. I can't imagine in my head what that distinction line would be like in the heart of man. But I love that. <laughs> Does anyone have an answer for Brian's question? <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> Please, if you're willing to. <laughs> Kingdom of glory, is that understood as that when Christ comes and everything is subjected, everything is overturned, that sin and death are defeated. I guess I should have studied that one beforehand, huh? <clears throat> Revelation 22.20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly, amen. 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That is their uh, Westminster Confession's defense of that statement. That last one, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened when Christ comes. So there we go. That's the answer to my question. Is that even an answer at all to... I appreciate your discretion. <laughs> I do, in fact. <laughs> All right, Greg. That is That's an important question. Mike. God sets rules. We can't follow them unless he enables us to. And when he does, he shows his power. And it's a signature of his working defeat of sin, um, working Christ-likeness in his people. Sounds like dominion to me. Sounds like advances against the enemy. Glory to Christ, who is the king. We call him Christ. Um, not the one who will eventually be king. Cynthia. Mm -hmm.
part of his dominion, the power that will show itself when he brings justice is going to be, it's unimaginable now. It's a part of his character. It's a part of his rule. We don't see it yet in, in our eyes, with our eyes, because injustice abounds, sin abounds, and the saints under the altar are crying out, how long, O oh Lord, in seeking after that justice of God, which is part of his character. It's not here. Well, it's not culminated yet, not fulfilled yet. It's hard. Landon, and then Kathy. in the midst of us. If it was in the midst of them in power, that seems pretty clear. Granted, I couldn't say any more about that. Kathy? Some of these things seem like, feel like they make sense. And as you know, I'm standing up here and couldn't tell you the half of the answers to the questions that I have about this. And while you guys might be able to, we have as many answers as we're going to get from Scripture. And that's the truth of the matter. And the rest of it we'll discover when the Lord wants us to. Scott. from Alistair Begg again. If this is a model, and Adam and Eve model it clearly, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, Eden, under his rule, he gave them rules, and they, they had fellowship with him, receiving his blessing. Translate to our present time, where we are God's people. We who he has called are God's people, the elect. And he is set his rules, and he governs us 
But we don't obey him perfectly. We never could. And we aren't receiving all the blessings that we'll once will one day receive. And so we look forward to a better day ahead while receiving some of that now under God's dominion. We still call him king. All right, I'm going to circle back. Brian. I'm going to need someone else to do I wish I could. You would all laugh me off the stage. Whew. All right, a couple questions on the ways of the enemies of the kingdom. I will not linger here long because we've already talked about this a good deal. Size 50 font, by the way. That's why I have 100 pages. Let's see if I can find it. We've almost said everything that I would have cared to say. Enmity with God's servants. Something I'll mention before we just jump on to another topic. That is, imagine the enemies of the kingdom of God. In their hearts, they have no desire to follow after God. He, he doesn't look on them with any particular favor. We don't know the hearts of men to know who he will eventually call to himself. But imagine one who is an enemy with God. Saul, for example. They look at you and me, or in Saul's case, look at the Lord's anointed, one who is very much like himself because he also was anointed, and they hate him. Uh, he, Saul, hated David and wanted to kill him. Well, folks don't necessarily look at us today with that kind of malevolence. Maybe they have, and maybe they will. But they look at us, God's children, and don't have any regard for God's work in us. Contrast that to Christ, who is concerned every day, every moment, with you. Otherwise, what does it mean for his spirit to, to indwell us? Is, he, is Christ off sitting, relaxing, while the spirit is doing work in us? But Christ is said to be interceding for the saints. And so Christ has a concern for the Spirit's work in us and God's work, but someone at enmity with God has no concern for that. Figured I'd mention that. I don't know if you have any thoughts or any reactions to that. In some sense, the caution stands. The Lord would say it better. Let every man take care not to be as the enemies of the Lord who don't have regard for each of the Lord's children. And we're not going to have Christ's regard for everyone as Christ has regard for them. Otherwise, we'd be God. That takes too much power. And a small aside, just <laughs> a nugget. Um, a kind, friendly goat. Think of sheep and the goats. It's still a goat in God's eyes doesn't mean we go around looking and saying and discerning and seeing the enemies of the Lord and going, goat. And not greatest of all time. <laughs> goat. You know, God says to love your enemies. But now I'm cheating. All right. We should go to um, behaviors of the servants of the kingdom. All right. 
A servant studies the ways of God. He's around his master. Um, I'll just read a couple of thoughts here. And you can give your response and agree or disagree. Have you regard for methods of battle? Do you like warfare, studying warfare? Study the Lord's warfare and the strategy of his will. That's going to be in scripture. And it might not be as cool as tanks, but it might be. Um, have you regard for horticulture? Take a look at the lilies of the field and see how God interacts with those things. Um, have you regard for ethics? Study God's work. He does some pretty difficult things to wrap our heads around that my, our ethics teachers in college would absolutely they go haywire over. And um, the last thing I'm going to say on the topic, which somebody has already said, is that Christ was a servant. I forget who that was. Um, so we study Christ's servanthood. <clears throat> and a couple last questions. Well, I didn't give any time for responses. Any thoughts? Objections? Do we love his subjects? We're part of his kingdom. And his kingdom is not of this world, so how do you wrap your head around looking to the left and the right? It's not like we're in a city with walls. It's called the kingdom of God. And we see the butler, and the shoemaker, and the lit teacher, you know, and everybody in their various skill sets doing their, doing their work. What of the rich saints? Do we have regard for them? What do they look like? Do, what do we think of a smart mouth saint? Those who, who God still looks on and you know, maybe his spirit is doing some work. What of the abject saints? They're all part of the kingdom. Again, without walls. You guys have said it. Uh, what do we think of them? They're also citizens of the kingdom of God. some ideas. I don't have any answers for you. But we know what Christ did. Tim. Thank you. Please do. Uh, yeah. somehow we're all supposed to wash each other's feet and have, have a mind and heart for one another. More than that, that's a gross summary right there, but <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I'll spare you the rest of those ideas. I'll try to get myself back on track. We've got 10 minutes. <clears throat> What are the ways of the Lord of this kingdom? Does he make himself known to his servants? How many kings of, uh, of the world have made themselves known to all of their servants? Imagine that task. Christ doesn't go out and about in the streets to us, you know, to, in the flesh at least. He doesn't come to us to give us cheer 
and to, to say the words that he said to the beggars and to the wise men and business with you from his own mouth right now. Um, but he makes himself known to his servants. Does he ride out to battle with them? That's a real question, obviously, a rhetorical one. Does he ride out to battle with them? I'm going to need your help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's gone from having a little bit of a kind of presupposes a battle, or that there are lines, that there would need to be lines for there to be an advance of the kingdom of some kind. Before I ask another question, Tim. love that, that verse that says, uh, I hope I'm quoting it correctly, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And what does a sword do? It does. Is this a picture of the end of days? What a picture. <clears throat> I saw a nod. I'm looking at my <laughs> chief points of contact. Phone a friend, Matthew. <laughs> what a picture. Um, and, and what blood is his robe dipped in? Is that the blood of his enemies? Is that the, the picture there, or is it? That's too much for me. <laughs> Tim.
ought to belong to the Lord. Yeah, if there's, if our nature is set against God, and it takes the Spirit of God to turn our hearts, what power do we have over sin apart from the Spirit of God? And who would win the battle? Would it be commitment on our part? Is it good intentions? And, or who, who wields the ultimate sword? I love 2 Samuel 5.24. And, oh boy, I'm going to have to set this context very briefly. Because it's a great, it's one verse, 5.24, but the context sets it. 2 Samuel. I'll just read briefly. Couldn't tell you the entire context. This is before the ark is brought to Jerusalem, so there. Verse 22, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Just imagine what's in their mind. What on earth is in the tops of the balsam trees? You don't have to answer that question. That's a rhetorical one. What on earth is in the tops of the balsam Well, it's an indication that the Lord's going out with them. Can you imagine what that's like? men who are ready to face death. And if they were devastated when at the beginning of their attempt to go to the promised land, after they found displeased God, they said, oh, Moses, we're still going to go up. We'll try, even though we had faithlessness and, and we're afraid to enter the land. Um, they go up and 37 are slain some small number, and yet they're devastated. They're weeping before the Lord. Well, in the time since then, tens and tens of thousands of Israelites have fallen. And men are going to battle, and they, what do they, they might expect to fall. And here is confirmation from the Lord that he's going to go out before them. Imagine what fighting in Israel was, knowing that the Lord was going with you. And we don't necessarily strap on a sword and experience that same battle today, and the fear of facing down an enemy who would end our lives. And yet there is one who is, has his will set against God who would see us eternally condemned before God, which is a worse death. It's hard to imagine what that is, and it feels like it would be pretty bad to die now. But we need the Lord to go out in battle. And what is that battle? It's probably the last thing we can speak of today before we close in prayer. What is that battle? Paul says it in some regard. He answers the question in some regard. And I might need help finding it. He says it's not against flesh and blood that we wage war. Does anyone remember where that is? Because I haven't looked it up. Ephesians 6.12. We should close with that. <laughs> There's so much more that could be said. Um, but no time to say it. 
Kathy, would you be willing to read that? Ephesians, oh, you know what? We might as well go out with a bang. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, are you willing to? Thank you. Thank you guys for finding that. <laughs> Paul says it best. And whether or not the answer has been forthcoming, you guys know you can go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and puzzle over it a little more. You'll know that I am too. The kingdom of God is huge. The majesty of God is huge. And uh, if it's his pleasure, we'll know more of it and honor him more for it. Uh, let's close in prayer. If I can find my prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to speak about you. Who is like you? We know that there is none like you. And the only way we know anything about you is because you have said something about yourself. And that you've made that word into knowledge in our hearts. In our understanding, without the Spirit of God, it would be gibberish. And we'd be as many men who can recite these words from the scriptures and disdain them, misuse them, hate them. How long will you multiply your people? For the glory of the king is indeed in the multitude of his people. And you have said that the number of your own would be countless as the sand of the shores of the sea. How great then must be the splendor of those shores. Who is like you? And who is like unto Christ? Stronger than all the strongest of men 
in all of the earth. You who are among us, and when you are bowed before men, and when your arms are stretched wide, did you not bring the pillars of your temple down until stone covered you, sealing salvation for your people and the death of your enemies? And while Samson will be named among the strongest men in all the earth, even he, when he's raised up, He'll be bowed yet again before, as every knee bows, before the strong man whose pillars will never, never be shaken again for all of eternity. We thank you for your strong arm. Um, we ask you to hasten the day of your coming. But until then, please allow us to count it a privilege to be etched out by your chisel, and to feel the blows of your hammer as you build a church that you're willing to look upon for, for all of eternity. And we say together, thy kingdom come. Amen. <laughs>